Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. This is episode 60 as we continue our journey through Matthias de Smet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. And this week, I would like to go through the seventh and the eighth chapters of this book. And this is now the fourth episode that I'm doing on this book. And I hope you found it helpful so far. But before I begin, I want to make a bit of a correction to something that I said last time. I think, at least I think it was last time. It might have been the episode before, but I was uh, speaking about the criticism that has been made of DeSmet's book, uh, that he talks about uh, hypnosis. And I said that he doesn't use that term, but he does actually use the term, and we encounter that in this chapter about, about hypnosis and how leaders and the people who follow them suffer from a kind of hypnosis in a kind of a circular, mutually reinforcing relationship. So that's one correction. So there, there, there is talk of a kind of hypnosis, and I'll, I'll speak to that issue and, and offer some critique of what DeSmet is saying here as well. So this first chapter, to begin right away, is called The Leaders of the Masses. And this is where the hypnosis comes in. He says, the leaders are not only hypnotized by their ideology, but also by the masses. The leader himself is entranced by the effects he produces in the crowd. Between the psychological condition of the masses and their leaders, there is a kind of circular causality. They hypnotize one another. Now he says this, but then in the next paragraph, he goes on to explain what he means. And I think it kind of takes away from the point he makes just now, about this hypnosis effect, because it puts much more of a responsibility on the leaders. Whereas if you say, well, the leaders hypnotize, it could be a kind of excuse. And so that's, that's where my concern about what he says comes in. Well, he's hypnotized by this. It becomes a, a, a blaming of something outside of the person. But DeSmet isn't entirely consistent here, because he says this, the fact that the totalitarian leader is himself under hypnosis and blind doesn't mean that he believes everything he tells the population. On the contrary, it is more accurate to put it this way. He blindly believes in the ideology he is trying to impose, but not in the discourse he uses to promote it. He believes so fanatically in his ideology that he considers it justified to limitlessly manipulate lie and deceive in order to realize that ideology. So that really doesn't sound like hypnosis to me. It sounds like a, a blind belief, as he says, in whatever ideology that leader has. And that, that means that the ends justify the means. So whatever it takes to promote that ideology, we'll do it. Because the ideology above all else is central. The means don't matter. So I can lie, I can cheat, I can steal, I can do whatever, as long as we accomplish the ends that we desire. And he says something very interesting on the next page, which really resonated with me. He says, curiously, the masses are always willing to forgive their leaders. Undeniable evidence of manipulation and deceit is whitewashed with phrases like, it may be mean, but it's smart, and in the end, they do it for our good. So we've heard a lot of that. They're doing it for our good. Yes, it's not good. And, and yes, maybe they twist the truth or they don't tell the entire truth, but it's for our own benefit. 
And then DeSmet cites Hannah Arendt again, and it's a, a good quote from her. The totalitarian mass leaders base their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. And so, he says, uh, DeSmet goes on to say this, that the essence of totalitarianism is not utilitarian or selfish in nature. Money and power only constitute intermediate ends. The ultimate goal is to realize an ideological fiction, and the totalitarian leader blindly sacrifices his own interests to achieve it. And I'm not sure that I entirely disagree, or entirely agree, rather, with what he says here. Of course, money and power are intermediate ends. What do we what do we seek power for? Well, we seek power for our own purposes. Even puppet power itself is the ultimate and the greatest of idols because with power we can achieve what we want. And for ideologues, for people who have an ideology, uh, a, a belief system that cannot be uh, discredited or cannot be countered, uh, an ideology, whether it be uh, of the left, so-called left, or of the so-called right, whatever it may be, uh, that the money and the power are means to achieve those ideological ends. And so he says the totalitarian leader blindly sacrifices his own interests to achieve it, but that's not entirely true either, because the totalitarian leader's interests lie in bringing his ideology into reality and making that ideology the dominant ideology and the guiding or ruling ideology. And so he says, the logic of a totalitarian system is in constant flux and typically becomes ever more absurd. The raison d'etre of a totalitarian system, the reason why it exists, consists of, among others, channeling anxiety, which is why it must constantly identify new objects of anxiety. When the system is no longer able to link anxiety to an object, it loses its raison d'etre, its reason for existing. So there always must be an object of anxiety that the leaders must identify and that the leaders must claim to be dealing with using whatever means, whether they themselves believe that those means will be effective or not, whether they themselves know that they're lying or deceiving people or not, whatever means work, because the ends ultimately justify the means. So here in this chapter, we see DeSmet talking about that, that circular relationship or that, that uh, endless circle. The, 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 the leader uh, directs the people, and the people respond to the leader, causing this kind of feedback loop. And that's what he calls that, that hypnosis. I don't, I don't like that terminology, and I think that terminology takes the, uh, or has the tendency to take some of the responsibility off the leader who knows what he's doing, who may be blinded. We know that sin blinds people. It makes people blind. It makes people foolish. It makes them not understand the world. 
It makes them lack wisdom because we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so anybody who does not fear the Lord lacks that wisdom. And so they're naturally blinded. And as a result of their rejection of God, God gives them over, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So so that process does not take, or when we think about it in biblical terms, it doesn't take the responsibility off of those leaders, those those would-be totalitarians or totalitarians in waiting who are who are working to implement their ideology and make it the guiding principle of society. So that's a brief look at chapter 7. And now on to chapter 8. And chapter 8 is where I have some more difficulty with what DeSmet is saying. I appreciate some of the things that he writes, but I'm also going to uh, cast a critical eye, you could say, on this chapter. And this chapter is called Conspiracy and Ideology. And so he goes into some of the history of conspiracy theories. He says, nowadays, the term conspiracy theory is bandied about even when it concerns theories that don't make any mention of conspiracy at all. And so he looks rightly to have some conceptual rigor and define the term. He says the term is currently used incorrectly to deride critiques of power structures at the levels of banking, politics, industry, economics, and media. So that's an important point. It's a it's an attack on the person. It's an ad hominem, to use that the, the Latin phrase for the logical fallacy, saying, deriding the person, rejecting what that person has to say, out of hand, saying that's a conspiracy theory. You're a conspiracy theorist. I've talked about this many times on uh, in in this podcast. So. But he says that the term is used currently, as I said, incorrectly to deride these critiques, the kind of critiques that I've been trying to offer here over the past couple of years and that many other people are offering as well. So he rightly wants to define his terms about conspiracies and conspiracy theories, and he rightly sees that this phrase has been used to attack people and to support the prevailing narrative. But he also says this, conspiracy thinking inflates the sizableness of the perceived enemy into infinity, so so that in the end, one can only feel powerless compared to such a giant. In this way, conspiracy thinking also embodies an aspect of self-destruction. Now, of course, that is possible. It's possible for somebody to say there exists this grand conspiracy uh, that's at work behind the scenes. There's nothing that we can do about it. Therefore, we must just throw up our hands and, and give up. Well, most of the people that I know, the the, the uh, independent journalists that I follow and, and the, the uh, podcasts that I listen to that, that have been referred to with that pejorative term as conspiracy theorists, don't fall into that kind of thinking. So it's kind of, yes, it's, it's true. There are so-called conspiracy theorists who fall into that category, but you, you certainly cannot paint everyone with the same brush. And I think DeSmet also recognizes that fact. And so in, in taking on conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists, DeSmet 
has a certain balance. And he says that, that there is uh, steering and manipulation going on behind the scenes and at the upper echelons of society in the world, the elites. He says uh, there, most, there most certainly is all kinds of manipulation. And with the means available, available to today's mass media, the possibilities are simply phenomenal. Such steering, however, is primarily not a steering by individuals. The most fundamental steering is impersonal in nature. The steering is first and foremost driven by an ideology, a way of thinking. And he says that very well. So there are a large number of people in positions of power who share the same ideology. Therefore, they work towards the same goals. They seek power because power will allow them to implement their ideology, which they, as Desmet himself says, blindly follow. Now he goes on and he says that the practices of, for example, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, etc., uh, that their practices may turn into something which does have the structure of a conspiracy. Large institutions do use all kinds of questionable strategies to impose their ideals on society, and the means to do so have increased spectacularly in recent centuries. So the means of communication, the internet, electronic media, all of these things have allowed these world elites to exert more and more power to uh, bring their ideology uh, into the, uh, the governance of society. Now, regarding the structure of conspiracies, he points out something very helpful. He says, there were approximately five people who neatly and systematically prepared the entire Holocaust destruction apparatus. And they managed to make all the rest of the system cooperate with it in total blindness for a long time. So, in other words, a conspiracy is possible. Many people say, well, how can such a conspiracy be possible? Well, if you just look at the example of Nazi Germany, you can see how such a conspiracy could be possible. And he says, he goes on to say, and those who did see what was going on, namely that the concentration camps were in fact extermination camps, were accused of being, what? conspiracy theorists. So there's a historical example. So with these constant attacks on fake news or, or uh, misinformation and disinformation, which we're hearing more and more and more about and attempts to control what the controllers of the dominant narrative uh, say is misinformation and disinformation, the, the attempts to limit freedom of speech comes a very grave danger. And DeSmet recognizes that. He says, the fact that in the current social climate, there is hardly any latitude to expose this decay in the exercise of power is highly dangerous. So that use of the phrase conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorists, the attacking of people with the use of that phrase is a dangerous a, a development and a dangerous way of looking at things and it's something that that we definitely need to avoid but then he goes on to say something and this is really this was really the major question that i had 
with the Smets book. Now, as, as I've been going through this book, and obviously I'm going through it in much greater detail than I've gone through a lot of the other books that I've gone through in the podcast, uh, as I've been going through it, you've seen that I really appreciate a lot the vast majority of what Smet writes, and I think he, he hits the nail right on the head in a lot of ways, given his limited perspective, his psychological perspective. But here he says this. He says, if anything rules from behind the scenes, it's not so much secret societies, but ideologies. Now, here's the problem with what he says here. The fact is, ideologies cannot rule. Ideologies are, are not people. People rule. Groups rule. Uh, what, what he calls secret societies may uh, be able to rule. Governments rule, which are made up of people, not of ideologies. Ideologies are abstract concepts, but people are concrete uh, existing things that can rule. So I think here he makes a category error by saying, if anything rules from behind the scenes, it's not so much secret societies, but ideologies. He says, there is a steering and organizing body, but it does not primarily, primarily consist of a conspiracy elite that manages the world in a planned and coordinated way, but rather of a typical way of thinking, an ideology. Now, to a certain extent, what he says is correct. The, the, the people who make the decisions and the people who have such a great influence on goings-on in the world, all around the world... What, what I term the elites, they do share a common ideology. But it's not the ideology that rules, it's the people. It's not the ideology that makes the decisions, it's the people. It's not the ideology as a, an abstract entity that fools people or seeks to fool people and manipulate people. It is the people who have this ideology. And so the argument he makes here, I don't believe it really holds water. What I like in this chapter is the positive, he, he, he gives a positive or an encouraging word when to people who might be feeling helpless or hopeless or feeling like we can't change anything, so why even bother? He says this, he says, in chapter six, we identified three groups that form when the mass rises. So there's the masses themselves who truly go along with the story and are quote-unquote hypnotized, usually about 30%. So he uses the word hypnotized again, but in quotation marks. Uh, he's not talking about a literal physical hypnosis in, in this point. He's the, the second group is not hypnotized, but chooses not to go against, or to not go against the grain. So those are the people that go along to get along, usually about 40 to 60%. And a group that is not hypnotized and actively resists the masses, ranging from 10 to 30%. So there's three groups uh, in general, the masses, the people that go along, and the people that actively resist. So what about the dissident voices, the people in that third group? Well, he says, the dissident voice has an effect on the second group, the group that is compliant, but not hypnotized. In contrast to the first group, or, and I, again, to use that word hypnotized, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but, but I would say that, that the group that is, has become blinded or that has deliberately blinded itself. Uh, so he says, in contrast to the first group, this group is responsive to the quality of rational argument. 
Therefore, it is important that the dissident voice analyzes and refutes the indoctrination and propaganda of the totalitarian narrative in the clearest and most substantiated way possible. In a sense, this isn't difficult. Since the totalitarian discourse, especially its typical excessive use of numbers and statistics, is usually simply absurd. So the third group needs to seek to influence the second group. He says, Dis dissident speech doesn't have to be primarily tactical or rhetorical in nature, but it should be authentic and honest. Even if speaking out has no effect on the other, it will still do something for oneself. So even if you don't convince somebody, it's still beneficial for you. Eventually, it is in this act of truth-telling that the absurdity of totalitarianism becomes meaningful. Those who do not join in the collective madness and quietly and sincerely continue to assert their opposing voice are, by doing so, steadily elevated in their humanity. And then he says, read, for instance, Solzhenitsyn's poignant testimony on the effects on himself that speaking out and writing had during his eight-year stay in the gulags. And that's tr telling the truth and speaking the truth for its own sake, more or less. Now, obviously, we never do anything solely or purely for its own sake. As, as God's people, we seek to do everything to God's glory. And, and speaking the truth means reflecting who God is, because he's the God of truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so it reflects Christ. It's living as God's image, seeking the truth. And so it's beneficial for us, even if other people are not convinced by the truth, and it gives glory to God, ultimately, which is the greatest thing. And so that's where he concludes uh, this chapter. And that brings us into part three, which is beyond the mechanistic worldview. And so I'll close this series uh, looking at Matthias de Smet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, next week. And so uh, I'll go over this, the last part, in a little less detail, because uh, I think the first part, especially, especially uh, these last few chapters, are the most helpful and the most important. But there's there's some good stuff in this last part of the book as well, and some helpful material. And so the Lord willing, next week, I'll be taking a look at that. So I'm going to stop here for now. I hope that you found this helpful. And once again, I've been recommending this book. The book is entitled The Psychology of Totalitarianism. The author is Matthias de Smet. The book was published this year. And I encourage you to go out and get a copy yourself. But if not, I hope that you found these summaries and this interaction with the book helpful, as always. My prayer is that God will bless this podcast and and the channel, and, and the use of it, and, and that it serves the purpose of strengthening us, so that, in the words of Daniel 11, verse 32, as people who know our God, we will be able to stand firm and to take action. So may God bless all of us, and all of you. I hope, once again, that you're enjoying your summer, and if you've found this helpful, please do pass on the link to the Rumble channel or to the podcast, wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts, and uh, maybe some other people will find it helpful as well. So until next time. <laughs>